Amen. Please remain standing and hear the words of our God as we continue through the Gospel of John. Be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. These are the words of God. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that your Spirit would now set that word before us and in us, before us that we might know the way and where we are to go, and in us that we might be transformed and made new renewed to love and serve you. Bless now the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. <clears throat> well, you'll recall, if you have your Bibles open, the last couple of verses of chapter 2 are in many ways an introduction or a kind of a prod, a, a, a teaser for what's about to take place in chapters 3, 4, and 5. The end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, John writes, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Remember, um, John has only recorded one sign so far, but we know from the other Gospels, we know that Jesus uh, over in, in this ministry has been doing many signs. And, and because of those many signs, we are told that many had believe, believed in him because of them. But it says something strange about Jesus' response to that belief in verses 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. The word there is the same word, believe, that they believed on him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't trust their trust. He didn't trust their, the fullness of their hearts and commitment to him. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in a man. And you're going to see him now. Um, so many believed, many believed in Jesus because of the signs that he did, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in a man. And now we enter into one of several conversations illustrating just what John meant at the end of, the chap of chapter 2. In fact, that's oftentimes why we are going to see Jesus say things that uh, to, to people who have approached him or that he's approached, say things that, that you say, ooh, you kind of blew the moment there, Jesus. You kind of had the opportunity and you, you blew it with the things that he said. Well, that's because Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows what needs to be said. Jesus doesn't need, um, he's not out searching um, for the approval of men. He's looking to give himself away in his death, burial, and resurrection, but he's not out seeking the approval of men. In fact, if he, he knows that if, if that was his case, if he was trying to seek the approval of men, he would end up, um, in, in many ways, compromising his words, the things that need to be said. Oftentimes, very hard words need to be said to men in order to produce soft hearts. 
Oftentimes, many hard words need to be said to men in order to produce, bring about soft hearts. So, while full of grace, while full of grace and love for mankind, Jesus pulls back the veils of sophistication and self-made justification and compromise and gets to the heart of the matter for each and every one of us. There was the new wine, and then there was the new temple in chapter 2. There was the new wine, and then there was the new temple, and now there is the new birth. We are moving from descriptions of salvation in each one of these. Each one of these pictures, each one of these stories are pictures of something, some aspect of the gospel and, and of salvation that Jesus is bringing. And so these descriptions go from incredible, the wine, that was incredible, you turn water into wine, to, to unlikely, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days, come on, to absolutely ridiculous. And can an old man climb into his mother's womb and be born again? This is the ridiculous gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this is the story that, is, that we are told in chapter 3. Nicodemus appeared, coming to Jesus by night. And, and it's interesting, there's all kinds of guess, guesses as to why John is careful to say that he came by night. Um, some want to argue that the rabbis got together and did most of their arguing and discussions at night. Uh, and some want to argue that well, he may have been afraid and feared the Jews or, or uh, feared his status, and so he came by night uh, in, some kind of, um, in, in some kind of fashion to hide himself from, from everyone else. But probably most importantly is to see within the text that, that uh, John is referring back again to the major themes that we talked about in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, if you turn back there, remember, we, we're learning about Christ um, and in verses 4 and 5, it says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Did not overcome it, did not comprehend it, did not grasp it. Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus by night, and Jesus is going to have some words to him. So maybe, it, maybe the point is, is more not just what time it is, but the state of Nicodemus as he comes to Jesus, um, seeking wisdom, seeking answers. He calls him rabbi, and, and, he, and he does so um, as a sign of respect. He also says, we know that you are a teacher, in verse, um, in verse 2 here. We know that you are a teacher. We. So he comes, Nicodemus comes uh, individually, but also right away we should note that he comes representing the leadership of Israel, and in one sense, all of Israel. He comes as a representative of Israel to Jesus and speaking to him. Nicodemus, we're told, is a Pharisee. What, what is a Pharisee? Um, a Pharisee was, there were a brotherhood of about 6,000 men at the time of Jesus' day, in, in Jesus' day, who had pledged to spend all their lives ob observing every detail of the scribal law. That's what they, they were the, they were the conservative movement with, within the, um, within the rabbinic circles. They were the conservative movement, we're back to the word, back to, they were the back to the Bible guys. We're going to go back and we're going to follow exactly what God's word is. And we're going to make sure that everybody else follows exactly what the word of God says as well. But they, they, they had committed themselves to, to keeping every single detail of the law and not just the Torah. The Torah would refer to the Old Testament writings that we have. 
but also to the Mishnah and the Talmud. These would be the oral traditions that eventually over the centuries had been written down, and then the interpretations and daily applications of the law. It, extensive volumes and volumes of interpretations and data with regard to how you are to apply God's law in certain situations. This is what they were committed to keeping, because if they kept that law, they would be holy before God. They were going to make themselves holy before God by keeping all of these rules. So, um, the, these, uh, um, the, the detail is, is just excruciating. There, I'm going to point out a couple of them in just a moment. In addition to being a, a, a Pharisee, we are also told that he was a ruler. The word is archon, and, and most likely points to the fact that he would have been one of the council of the Sanhedrin, which is another group. This group within, um, with, within the... Um, priestly nation and within the, the rulers of Israel were the highest rulers. They were the highest legal and judicial body of the Jews. So not only is he committed to following the law, but he is committed to judging those with, with whether or not they are keeping the law. He is all about the law. He is all about all of the details of keeping the law. And so um, one of their duties was to examine anyone suspected of being a false teacher. So it, it's possible that he has true... Um, personal desires to see who Jesus is and ask questions, but it's also possible that he's coming representing the legal authorities to find out what kind of teaching Jesus is doing and is he keeping, is he keeping the strict laws. Um, you, you probably can recall all the different times you see them arguing with Jesus because he heals or he does certain things on the Sabbath day. He, he does all kinds of things on the Sabbath day that there's nothing in the word that says that you can't do, but the interpretations, the, the legal details that have been written down, that's what they're noticing that he's not following. So he comes, he comes to examine him as well. But, it, but in another sense, like I said, he, he comes with some sign of respect and possibly even holding out a, a, an olive branch. Jesus is gaining many followers. Jesus is getting a lot of the Jews to come to him. John the Baptist had had people who were coming and repenting of their sins. What are we to do with these people, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees would be thinking? And one of the things that might be on, on Nicodemus's mind or the Sadducee's mind is, well, let's bring him in. If he's a rabbi, if he's a teacher, let's bring him in. Let's examine him. Let's make the most of this opportunity. And so he calls Jesus rabbi and acknowledges that he believes he is a teacher sent from God because of his signs. He, he acknowledges that we believe that you are a teacher, that, that the Israelite rulers are saying, you know, this man might be like Moses. He might be like Elijah. He might be a great prophet. Let's go see him. Let's bring him to ourselves. Maybe they thought he was a prophet like that. And, and so this could be Jesus' moment. He could be accepted by the group of Pharisees, by the group of the Sadducees, brought into the city leaders, brought into all of the religious leaders, and brought into them to join with them in leading a great crusade of conservatism and, and bringing all people back into moral, moral conformity with the law and all the details. Here is his opportunity. Here's his opportunity to be uh, acknowledged by those who people acknowledge are the holy ones, are the ones who are turning us back to God. This was Jesus' moment. He could really launch his ministry and bring about all kinds of public approval, and Jesus blows it. In one sentence, in one sentence, Jesus dismisses everything Nicodemus stands for and demands that he be renewed by the power of God. Renewed. Born again. 
a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a keeper of the law? Jesus turns to him. Again, just listen to the, in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers and said, well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. No, Jesus turns to him and says, most assuredly, uh, the word is amen, amen. This is his vow before God. Amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, well. <laughs> so Jesus says that Nicodemus and all old Israel needs to be born again. Born again. And even when he uses this phrase, um, you, you need to understand this in the context of the first century Judaism, this is not entirely an alien idea. In rabbinic teachings, Israel had been set apart as a clean people and all the Gentiles were deemed unclean. Now this is not, this, this teaching goes far beyond anything that the scriptures were, were talking about, our scriptures. And to, and to begin to describe, if you're going to stay holy, you got to stay away from the Gentiles. No eating with the Gentiles, no touching the Gentiles, no talking with the Gentiles. You stay away from the Gentiles or you'll, you'll be unclean. So this is the kind of thing that they were take that, that they were doing, but one of the things that uh, so let me a couple of details about this. Um, you couldn't have table ship, table fellowship with them. A Jew would be unclean if he ate with the Gentiles. And in addition, Gentiles were considered spiritually dead. So if the Gentiles are spiritually dead, then we can apply Numbers 19 that talks about what a dead corpse. What are you supposed to do with a dead corpse? You touch a dead corpse, you're now unclean ceremonially unclean. So you don't touch dead corpses like all those living Gentiles out there. You keep your distance. This was the teachings of the, of the rabbis. This was the teachings of the Pharisees and, and the judgments of the, of the Sadducees. But what was interesting is a Gentile could convert and become a Jew of sorts. And when a Gentile became a Jew, he would, if it was a man, he would be circumcised. Men and women were both baptized. Actually, they baptized themselves. They would go through a, a, a ceremonial washing or sprinkling that was, that was tied to um, Old Testament practices, but then expanded with, with regard to um, being brought in and being part of the Jews. The details aren't in the Old Testament. They're in all these other writings. But what would, what would happen is they would be then declared clean. In fact, the, uh, there was a rabbi that taught that a, a Jew or a, a Gentile who had gone through these rituals had been born into a new life. And so this idea of being born again was not unusual for Nicodemus to hear. But Nicodemus isn't an unclean Gentile. What are you talking about, Jesus? Israel is, not, Israel is not, the, are not the Gentiles. Why are you saying Israel must be born again? So, um, so a Gentile was born again when he became a full proselyte, converted into the covenant people of God. But Jesus said that the covenant people of God, Nicodemus and Israel, had to be born again. And this doesn't go very well with Nicodemus. In fact, it's accusatory. It's calling him out. It's calling him, a Pharisee and ruler of Israel, unclean and spiritually dead. It doesn't get you friends real quick to do such things. Nicodemus claims that he can see something of who Jesus is, but Jesus insists that no one can see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. This is the exclusivity of the gospel here. This is the, 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 
the, the absolute necessity of, of what has to happen in order to be in the kingdom of God. You, you must be born again. There is no other way. Nicodemus then responds and represents all of us who respond to such a demand as ridiculous, even insulting. What do you mean? I'm not unclean. I'm not a Gentile. I'm not as bad as those filthy people living in the homeless tents down there. I'm not as awful as those wicked, uh, those, those wicked extremists, Islamic extremists who are killing and maiming and raping. I'm not that bad. I'm not like them. I, my, standard, I, my standard of living is far higher. It's far better. I am on my way. I am on my way to holiness. I am on my way and I'm climbing the ladder to be in heaven. I'm not like them. Nicodemus says, this is, this is a, an insulting. Are you telling me I have to climb into my mother's womb? How can a man climb into his mother's womb and be born again? So his, this curt, crass, and literalistic interpretation reveals his unwillingness to understand and not simply his misunderstanding. There's a difference between not understanding because you have questions about it and not understanding because you don't want to understand. You know the difference. You know the difference when it, it, the issue is not at all that you seek understanding, but rather you want to, you want to make Jesus' words as you're going to try to make them as literalistic as, as possible so you can prove that it's not possible at all to, to keep his word. Or you, 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 you're given a command, children. You're given a command by your, by your parents to do something. And you try to figure out, you know, needle your way around not having to do it by asking lots of questions. Well, did you really mean now? Did you really mean right this mean? Do you mean all the toys? Do you mean, do I have to edge along with Mo also? I mean, let's, just, I mean, let's be clear about all this. I'm not, quite, I I'm not quite sure I understand what you want me to do. Well, we do this with God. And it's not an issue of, of, of seeking understanding at all. It's an issue of trying to push back and push away. This is the kind of answer that Nicodemus is doing. That is ridiculous that Jews have to be born again. What do you, what do you mean? I'm going to crawl into my mother's womb and, be, and, and come out again? That's, that's terrible. It's a terrible idea. So... There is this failure to understand which comes from a refusal to understand. And this points back to the end of chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in a man. But at the same time, Jesus gives these hard words that may be actually having an effect upon Nicodemus. We might want to pull Jesus aside and say, you know, Jesus, it might be better if you weren't quite so insulting right up front with the first thing you say to this guy. Okay, you know, build a relationship with him and then look for the opportunity to give him the truth. But Jesus comes in full, full bore in his discussion with Nicodemus and gives hard words. Now, John's gospel is the one that gives us two other incidents where Nicodemus shows up. The first one is in, uh, is in chapter 7 where he comes to the defense of Jesus um, when the Sanhedrin is, and the council is talking about him. And the second one is at the crucifixion of Jesus when, where he's taken down from the cross and we are told that Nicodemus brings the myrrh and the aloes, 100 pounds for Jesus' spices to be before he is entombed. Something appears to have happened with Nicodemus. And these hard words may have had just the effect that the God of grace knew needed to be said, needed to be done. Jesus says again, most assuredly, amen, amen, verse 5. 
I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is doing, he's correcting and giving more understanding about what it means to be born again. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. What? I have to climb into my mother's womb? No. Most assuredly, I say to you again, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let me explain to you again what being born again means, what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being born of water and the Spirit. So, to be born again is to be born of the water and the Spirit. Now, what, what does he mean by this? Again, these are, this is the Gospel of John. Oftentimes, the words come at you from the Gospel, and you really have to sit and ponder. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of disagreement about whether or not he's referring to um, two different births. You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. Is he referring to bapt- water baptism and then also baptism of the Spirit? What's, what would he be saying, and especially what would he be saying, and what would Nicodemus take from it? So, so rather than looking at this from our perspective, we have to climb into Nicodemus' shoes and think about how would he take that? How would he take that? One other thing I also want you to, to, to think about um, and consider here is when he says um, he has to be born, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, the word and, chi in the Greek, can also be translated even. And it is translated even or specifically when you, when you make a translation that's called an exegetical translation. In other words, it would be like translating instead of born of water and the Spirit, be born of water, specifically the Spirit. When Paul says in, in Corinthians, um, I, I came to, 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 say, to tell you nothing except Christ and him crucified, he doesn't mean he had two things to talk to them about. He means, I came to you to preach Christ, that is, Christ crucified, specifically, okay? And, and if, you take, if you take this passage this way, then all of a sudden, here's what it sounds like. Um, it sounds like, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that is, the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and Spirit together, the same thing. Well, Ezekiel 36, which I read in our call to worship, but I'm going to read again would be in mind where water and spirit come together to signify cleansing and the transformation of the heart. In, in a Pharisee's mind, he wants to see, he wants to see his kingdom and a Messiah come to lead all of the people to, 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 to come to Israel to, and Israel to rule over all. That's, that's what they want. Holiness of Israel, a restoration of the kingdom, and an ability to rule over all. They want to see the kingdom of God. And in the prophecies of Ezekiel, during the time when all of Israel, unclean and in exile, Ezekiel gives prophecies talking about how they're going to be made right, how the people of God will be made right and be brought back into the land and reestablished. And in the midst of those pictures, Ezekiel writes, so with that in mind, listen to these words again from Ezekiel. If you'd like, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, and you can see this, verses 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle you clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This was the hope of the Pharisees for a great reformation and revival amongst their people. And Jesus is saying that what, what that meant is you must be born again. You must be born of a water spirit. God must do this work upon you, upon Israel, now, in order, to, in order to see and be a part of the kingdom of God, in order to enter into the kingdom of God. 
So um, water and spirit come together to signify cleansing and the transformation of the heart, both. Cleansing and transformation of the heart is what takes place when one is born again. We can look as well ahead to John 7, 37 and 38. This is what Dr. Merkel, this was Dr. Merkel's text last uh, Lord's Day. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus said this because he was speaking about when the Holy Spirit would come. So the Holy Spirit would come. And, 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 and when the Holy Spirit would come, it would be like a great cleansing and a great transformation of God's people. That's what Jesus was talking about. Water and spirit connected together. This is the spiritual transformation, uh, transformation of the individual from spiritual death to spiritual life. Without this transformation, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says to be born again is to be born of spirit and water. To be, to be transformed with a cleansing and a new heart and a new way of, of being with God that did not exist beforehand. This was something that was prophesied or promised that God was going to do in the hearts of individuals. And it was going to be done, in the, and the mindset was, this was going to be done over an entire nation, an entire people, and even the world. That's, that's in the mind of the, of the prophet as he's writing as well. And so there's both an individual aspect and a corporate concept to, to be kept in mind um, as well. Jesus goes on and says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In context, Jesus' uh, flesh refers to our first birth. And while it is true that we are born in sin, I don't think Jesus' point here is our human birth uh, is, is, our, our point is, is not with regard to the, the fleshly nature or the sinful nature itself, but rather the, the, the part that we are born once already as a, and, and into the human family. We're part of the human family. You get, when you're born, you're born in the human family, and you might notice you didn't get to choose whether you're going to be born or not. That was something that something else, someone else did, and it happened to you. But that which is born of flesh is just flesh, but that which is born of spirit Remember, we're all spiritually dead until the Holy Spirit brings us into life. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And so Paul would speak similarly of, of, of the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man, the fleshly man or the, the uh, uh, spiritual man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And then he says these words, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. When Paul uses this word, the natural man, he means the Greek idea of the Sukakos man was this, man at his best. Man in, in himself, the enlightened man, the man who has really come to, to, to be the best a man can. And what Paul says is the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And the natural man does not have the Spirit. The natural man, man at his best, is still going to ruin things because he is spiritually dead. He's not going to understand things. He's going to consider the words of Jesus. He's going to consider the gospel to be utter foolishness because the Spirit of God is not in him. So, to be born again is a second birth, another birth that takes place, and another birth that takes place that you have nothing to do with. 
You have no more ability to determine whether or not you're going to be born again than you were your ability to determine if you were going to be born. How do I know that? The next verse. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, to be born again is to be born of water and spirit. To be born again is to have a second birth, born of the flesh and now born of the Spirit. And to be born of the Spirit is something that the Spirit does of his own free will. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he should not be amazed that Jesus has said, you all must be born again. Um, and then describes the sovereign work of the Spirit. He is like the wind. The Spirit is like the wind, he is saying here. In fact, if you look at your Bibles for just a moment, um, I want, let me point out a couple of things. First of all, um, um, Words are not capitalized in the original Greek. And so whether or not spirit is capitalized or not is a determination. That's an interpretive decision that's being made. But there's something else that's going on here. The word spirit and the word wind and the word breath are the exact same word. In Greek, the word is pneuma. And, and, and so you could read it this way. You could say, um, you could read verse 8 this way. You could say, um, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the wind. But he's not talking about the wind. He's talking about the spirit. And he's comparing the wind and the spirit. And it takes, it takes the context in order for you to translate it correctly. But that's what's going on. Jesus is saying the pneuma is just like the pneuma. The spirit is just like the wind. And what does he want to point out about that wind? He says the wind blows. Who can control the wind? <clears throat> you can't. The wind blows wherever it wishes. It determines wherever it wants to go, where, however it wants to go, how hard it wants to go, what it wants to miss. The wind um, is, has this ability to do whatever it wants, and, and the spirit is exactly the same way. Now, why would that be important to say to a man like Nicodemus, who believes that he can work to that level of what you might be calling Jesus born again, holiness, cleanliness, transformation. I can do. I can follow God's law. I can keep his law. I can keep all the details of it. And I can reach a state of holiness. I can be a good person. I don't need Jesus to be a good person. I don't need the spirit of God to be a good person. And Jesus says, you must be born again. And you can't be born again unless you are born a second time by the spirit and you can't control the spirit. You can't whistle them up. You can't, you can't, you can't, and, and, and the, the, even worse than that, you don't want to. You don't want to whistle up the spirit. You don't want to admit the fact that you are spiritually dead and someone else is going to have to bring you into, in, into, into birth. Any more than a, some, a non-existent person can say, I really want to be born. The person doesn't exist to want to be born. The spiritual person, the spiritual part of us is dead and does not want to be reborn, does not want to be born, does not want to be brought into existence. We don't want to be born again. That's our big problem. And, but he tells Nicodemus this, I think, for another reason as well. Not just that he cannot control him, but that Nicodemus also should see what he's been reading his whole life. Not just Ezekiel 36, but Ezekiel 37 as well. Would you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37? 
So chapter 36 was this great prophecy about <clears throat> becoming transformed and spiritually made clean. And chapter 37 describes how God does that. I'm going to read uh, 14 verses from chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he, that's God, caused me to pass by them, or the spirit, caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And indeed, they were very dry. They were really, really dead. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Now, I just want to stop there and just want you to know something. Jesus is going to take the title son of man. Okay, Jesus will call himself the son of man. Now, just continue to listen to this. So he, son of man, um, so I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Now, here's what's amazing. Breath and spirit and wind are the same word, pneuma in Greek. Breath and spirit and word are the same word, ruah, in Hebrew. Okay, so the ruah of the Lord came, and the ruah of the Lord said to, um, said to the Son of Man, Son of Man, can these dry bones live? And the Son of Man said, Lord, you know. And the ruah said, the ruah said, I, he says, I will cause ruah to enter into you, and you shall live. I will cause the breath of God. I will cause the spirit of God. Surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on those, these slain that they may live, in the Hebrew. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four ruah, O breathe, O breath, O, o ruah, and ruah on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came unto them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Jesus will later on turn to Nicodemus in, in, in the next part of this passage and say, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I thought you were a student of the word of God. What I am saying to you is nothing new, Nicodemus. You must be born again. And I got verses to prove it to you. This is what he's pointing to. This is the great promise that God had given to renew Israel, to bring forth a new Israel, to bring forth a reborn Israel. And you continue on through the whole New Testament. Jesus, Jesus and then Paul are going to invite the unclean Gentiles to join with the unclean Jews and all be sprinkled and made clean. 
Jew and Gentile alike will get baptized. Jew and Gentile alike will have their hearts transformed. Jew and Gentile alike will be brought together to be the new Israel. God is going to save Israel. And Israel is going to be the new Israel, Jew and Gentile, all over the world. A number that it says in the book of Revelation that could not be numbered of every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's what God was going to do with his spirit. That's what Jesus is talking about. But there's nothing Nicodemus can do to bring it about except argue. And almost all the time when the gospel is preached, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, you see, you see it in a man. The only thing a man that can, can do when the gospel is preached, the only thing that he can do within himself is argue with it. Argue about it. Argue with you about it. Get angry with you about it. Demand of you to stop saying those things. Demand of you to stop judging you in this way. That's all we can do. The only thing we can do when the gospel is brought to us is argue. Complain. Push back. Until the breath of God moves in the dry bones. And put skin and flesh. Until God does something. That's what Jesus is making so clear here as he speaks to Nicodemus. The great lawman. The great ruler. The great holy pursuer. You can't get there. You must be born again. This is the new birth and the free will of the spirit. There's always all this argument about God's sovereignty and man's free will that we go back and forth about. You know what a lot of that is? That is the argument that comes from a man who wants to argue with God about the gospel. Because I don't hear anyone really arguing about whether or not the Holy Spirit should have a free will. <laughs> Do you believe in the sovereignty of man or the free will of the Spirit? Those, nobody has those arguments. We argue about whether man is sovereign or God has free will. Whether God is sovereign or man has free will. Nobody's arguing about whether the Spirit has free will and man is, and, but man's sovereign. Why? Because we want to argue about the gospel. We want to climb on our own up into the kingdom of God. We want to see the kingdom of God on our own. We have it within ourselves, don't we? And so, and so um, the conversation is going to continue in verses 9 and following, but we're going to just stop right here. Nicodemus is the religious type that we should see as man's best attempt to save himself. And Jesus has declared him as dead as a Gentile as unclean as a Gentile, in need of spiritual rebirth. He also made clear that this can only happen if and when the Spirit blows in his favor. It only can happen. And if and only if the Spirit blows, that is the free will of God, the Father at work. Jesus would say in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And again in chapter 6. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Unless the son of man prophesies over the dead bones. Unless you hear the voice of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And unless you hear the voice of Jesus, you will not get out of that grave. And you won't want to get out of that grave. And you don't even know that you are in that grave. Unless you hear the voice of Jesus, the breath of God prophesying over your dead bones, you're just going to be a goody two-shoes at best. At best. But if you hear the voice of Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. So, this is the free work of God's election. 
in Acts chapter 13 after Paul preaches. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. He loses none that he calls his own. And the Spirit blows where it wills in the work of regeneration. Listen to Romans 9. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so that it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That is threatening to the natural man. That is threatening to our natural inclinations. We want to be in control. We want to have the final say. We want to be the ones who decide for ourselves which way we are going to go. It's this way because we want to cling to our own autonomy. It takes the new birth out of our control and it makes us feel helpless. One of the hardest things to, to deal with is if you're dealing with the doctrine of election, if you're dealing with the doctrine of the irresistible grace and the work of the Holy Spirit and only the work of the Holy Spirit to bring someone to faith, then all of us, all of us, each one of us has moments where we say, but what if I'm not one of them? But what if I'm not one of them? Charles Spurgeon, who preached the gospel of grace, but was a full five-point Calvinist with regard to all the doctrines of grace, said that he believed in the doctrine of election, that God had elected every last, uh, had, had, every last one had, that was going to be saved had been elected by God and only the elect. He said, and someone said to him, why do you preach everywhere? He says, well, if, if God had put yellow stripes on the back of, of all the elect, I, I wouldn't preach. I'd go around lifting shirts. But he didn't, so I preach, I preach the gospel everywhere. I preach the gospel to everyone. And I let the Spirit of God do its own work. It's, not, it's, it's, it's threatening unless the Spirit of God awakens you. And at that moment, you realize, and you realize over and over again as you continue to confess and repent and walk away from your own autonomy, you begin to see over and over again that this, the Spirit blowing and granting us understanding is the greatest gift to be given to you. The greatest gift to be given to you when you didn't want it. When you didn't want to be saved. And God said, I don't care. You're coming now. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you know what it means to be grabbed by the nape of your spiritual dead neck. And be dragged into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. Some of you know. And some of you know what it's like to be grabbed again by your baptism. Because God has said, no, you're mine. Get back here. And he brings you back in. Why? Because he loves you. He doesn't give you a choice in the end. Yeah, no, no, wait a second. I have all kinds of choices, right? I make all kinds. I've watched people make a decision to follow Jesus. What are you talking about? Well, that, that comes down to the fact, of course we have to believe. Of course we have to cry out and, and believe. But what is it that brings forth faith? God. It, it's God and God alone who grants the faith to believe. And when God grants the faith to believe, he grants it upon a heart, a new heart that he has given. A heart that now wakes up and sees the glory and the grace and the kindness and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus that you weren't looking for. You were trying to excuse the fact that you needed it. But in fact, you need it more than anything else in this world. You need it. You, you need the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you keep this in mind when we get to those really hard passages. When Jesus says things like, Ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. 
And he says in one of those passages, and I'm just going to paraphrase, I'm not going to turn there. He says in one of those phrases, but you can ask for whatever you want, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. And if you don't think about it in context, you say, but I wasn't thinking about the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about the 48-foot yacht. <laughs> but if you understand what he's talking about, then you will find what, well, what will happen is you'll want the Holy Spirit more than anything. You'll want eternal life more than anything. And, and here's the wonderful truth about it. The moment that you want eternal life more than anything... That, that moment will have come because you have been granted eternal life. Because God has already done that work, that glorious work in you. And you'll see at that very moment, there's absolutely nothing I can do. There's nothing I have to do. There is no ladder. I, the angels of God are coming up and down. God has provided the way. It's free, paid for, it's all done. And it's mine. And all of a sudden, instead of feeling threatened... It's thrilling. It's thrilling what he's done. What he's done for you, if you're in Christ, what he would do for you if you will hear the words of the gospel. And what he is going to do, as we'll see in the next passage, in the next part of the passage, what he is going to do all over this stinking world. All over it, all through it. That's why he came. That's why we worship him. That's why we pray for preachers. That's why we beg for reformation and revival and awakening again. We do it because we want to see it happen, but we also do it because God has said he will. God has said he will. And so for all of us, he can do something about any state that we're in, any situation, any fallenness, any shortcoming, he could take care of any of it at the snap of his finger or the breath of his wind, the breath of his Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, your sovereign will is the love of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to raise the dead, to make those who are spiritually dead alive, to make those who are unclean and unfit to be in your presence clean, holy, to bring us to life in Christ Oh, Father, do here, do so here with each man and woman, with each child. Do so that we might have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And do so over our land, even our people, even this generation. We desperately need to be born again. Do so to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Stand together and turn to page 267.